the extreme amount of bass. Listener's discretion is advised. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by O's. O's is a premium disposable vape product made with the highest pharmaceutical grade quality ingredients and comes in 12 delicious flavors like velvet tobacco, sweet apple, strawberry banana, grape ice, lemon tart, mango, and so many more. Right now, O's is offering all of my listeners 50% off their orders. So head on over to letsos.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 50% off your order. With O's, you'll look forward to your moment of zen. This episode is sponsored by Doom and Groom. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. Their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe, keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. All of their products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use my code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your purchase. Once again, that is doomandgroom.net, promo code HARMONYDOOM. Hey you, what's up and welcome to this week's episode. This week is going to be a crazy experience because the case I have for you today involves sex cults, crime, possible suicide, who really done it type shit. Like, it's just a real mystery. It has questions to this day that still are left unanswered. I had no idea what I was in for when I started diving into this case. But before we begin, let me say hey to all of you newcomers. Hey there, what's up? My name's Harmony, and every week I like to meet here and tell you some of the most fucked up shit, honestly, that I can find out in the world. And in case you are wondering, we live in a pretty fucked up place. So every week, why don't you come here, hang out with me, and let me tell you just how dark the world really is. So without any further ado, let's jump in to today's case. Just months after her wedding, she was found with a suicide note next to her body. On the evening of Thursday, October 30th, 2012, Jackson County investigator Penny Cole received a call which summoned her to a potential crime scene. Detective Cole headed out to the scene, a picnic area that was overlooking Longview Lake. This area was just southeast of the larger Kansas City metropolitan area. It's a woodland and somewhat isolated from the surrounding suburbs. So we're talking kind of woodsy, you know, like an actual park where you would go and have a picnic with somebody. Detective Cole arrives there just before 10 p.m., and she's shown the scene in question. Detective Cole sees an innocuous-looking tan Ford Windstar, which is parked in the far northwest area of the parking lot. In the back seat of the minivan was the body of a young woman. She was curled up in the third row of seats on the passenger side of the vehicle. She had one leg nestled under the other, as if she was sitting comfortably in her final moments. She had on a light blue fleece sweater, black sweatpants, running shoes, and still had her diamond wedding ring on her finger. Which for many of you probably know right away is a big sign to many detectives. When police, investigators, detectives, whoever is involved with the authorities notice that there is jewelry on a victim, the chances of a robbery going wrong sort of go out the window. Cole and other investigators viewed the scene cryptically because what originally seemed to be possibly a simple suicide looked to be something much more sinister. Inside the minivan, they found items that pointed to a normal, everyday life. They found eyeglasses which had been folded and placed inside the cup holder. They found a purple pillow lying beside the young woman and several CDs produced by the International House of Prayer. This was a Christian movement based out of the surrounding area nearby. 
They found a photo ID on the floorboard which possibly pointed to the identity of the young woman. The name on the ID read Bethany. Bethany was an RN for the nearby Menorah Medical Center. Other items made the investigators a bit more uneasy. They found a plastic Walmart bag that only had one item inside, a cell phone. A notebook that was laying nearby was filled with pretty troubling thoughts, some unusual list in there, and scattered dreams. They even found some unfinished thank you notes for a wedding which had recently been worked on. Then they found the items which pointed directly to a suicide attempt. Two 200-count bottles of Tylenol PM, one of which was empty and the other left unopened. But most definitive, a handwritten note which looked to be a suicide letter. The note which investigators read and reviewed multiple times told them the identity of the young woman. It also pointed to a story full of unusual characters and unanswered questions. Questions that to this day still linger. The suicide letter read, My name is Bethany Deaton. I chose this evil thing. I did it because I wanted to be a real person. And what is the point of living if it's too late for that? I wish I had chosen differently a long time ago. I knew it all and refused to listen. Maybe Jesus will still save me. This is the story of Bethany Deaton. you're ready because this one's crazy. Bethany Ann Lideline was born October 15, 1985 in San Antonio. Her parents were Eric and Carol and she was one of five children. She had three sisters, Erin, Shannon, and Kristen, as well as a single brother named Matthew. She grew up in a very devout Christian household. Now this was sort of the community that they lived in, a very Christian suburb of Dallas. She was homeschooled in her youth before moving on to a nearby high school. There is where she met Taryn O'Brien. Taryn would later become her lifelong boyfriend. Together, the two shared their dreams and aspirations with one another. Taryn would later recall Bethany as a romantic at heart and would write letters to her future husband describing him in great detail, as any daydreaming schoolgirl would. And any girl who's sitting there right now going, I did not daydream in school. Okay, you keep telling yourself that. We all know you signed your name with his last name. Come on, come on. We all did it. 12-year-olds. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Now, even though they met later on than the younger, you know, school puppy love, they were instantly crazy about each other, and she was crazy about him. Bethany was known as an easy learner and a bit of a bookworm. She read almost every Charles Dickens novel by the age of 13 and had a solid understanding of the English language early on. She was also described as a gifted writer by those who knew her, being described as a very poetic and lyrical person. She was gifted with a way of making her words sound fluid and emotional. Bethany was such a gifted writer that she earned herself a scholarship to Southwestern University. This was a private institution just outside of Austin, Texas. She began attending the institution in 2005 and quickly embedded herself in a group of like-minded Christian intellectuals. Many of the people who were involved in this group early on described Bethany as the lifeblood of this collective. Quote, she had a quiet energy that flowed through the group. Her life was one of the most luminous and promising I've ever known. This group, which grew close due to their faith, also bonded over common interest. 
one of these interests was the fascination with fantasy stories. In particular, stories such as the Chronicles of Narnia, The future of Narnia rests on your courage. Lord of the Rings, What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? But most especially, Harry Potter. You're a wizard, Harry. According to one member, they said that, quote, these stories fueled our sense of being on a divine mission. One of their chief attractions was a sense of belonging to a secret club with exclusive access to knowledge and power. This was the root of our whole ideology. Ideology. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said ideology. Apparently, again, every week, I prove why I should not host a podcast. <clears throat> sorry for the distraction. One of the members of this young group was named Tyler Deaton. In the course of 10 days, I lost Bethany first to death, which is worse than the other ones because um, it's so absolute. Um, and then I lost all my friends. They like went from being really supportive to gone. Tyler Deaton had been raised in a devout Presbyterian household in the area of Robstown, Texas, a suburb of Corpus Christi. Because Tyler grew up in a highly religious household, he often struggled with his own sexuality. You see, Tyler was gay. However, he struggled to come to terms with it throughout his life because of his background. In his viewpoint, the gay thoughts he had as a youth, which he thought of an active choice he was making at the time, challenged his faith. This created a splintered ego early on in his life. Quote, to me, being gay meant you were this, like messed up, even like a villainous person. You couldn't love God. It was, it was so, I didn't identify as a gay. Tyler said that because he stated basically that he did not identify as being gay because if you say that you are according to the religious beliefs that he was brought up, then that means that you're basically denouncing God. Because of all of this, Tyler struggled with his personal identity as he grew up. On the outside, he had the traits that every guy would dream of. He was tall, handsome, charismatic, and had a personality that endeared himself to others quite quickly. But on the inside, Tyler felt worthless. This created a confrontational nature inside of him, which drove him to rise to any challenge or situation. At Kalalin High School in Corpus Christi, Texas, he was in the marching band and became a champion debater. He ended up in his class's top 10, but had developed a jaded personality that saw everything in black and white. To Tyler, you were either with him or against him. It was this personality which catapulted Tyler to Southwestern University where he quickly found a group of like-minded thinkers. Thinkers who agreed with him on the basis of Harry Potter being the, quote, greatest series ever written. I mean, like, it is a pretty great series. I'm not going to argue there. It's true, then, what they're saying on the train. Harry Potter has come to Hogwarts. In this small group of friends that came together in the mid-2000s, Tyler was often seen as the leader. Members like the young and very impressionable Bose Harrington looked up to the charismatic and headstrong Tyler as their unofficial leader. Tyler sort of was put into the role by all of his friends in this group. To them, it was as if Tyler was one of the fantasy characters that they read about. Like Harry Potter, Tyler's fictional hero who surrounded himself with a plucky cast of characters while away at school. 
You get it? <laughs> like Harry Potter? Aha! <clears throat> Let's continue. In fact, some of those that befriended Tyler in this time period described him as having some kind of magical aura. According to them, this drew others to him. One friend said that Tyler was, quote, using a mysterious power to control others in ways that were unexplainable. Another person stated, quote, in the years I was with him, things were constantly happening that I had to shrug away as being the work of the Holy Spirit. Tyler would raise his voice and say, Jesus, and the neighbor's music would immediately stop. He would tell the birds to fly away and they would fly away. He would place a curse on my appliances so they wouldn't work and they wouldn't work. Tyler seemed to embrace this belief that he was somehow more connected to the Lord. It made him feel special, and in a sick way, it made him feel closer to God himself. And by closer, I mean he thought he was God. Now, Bethany quickly became infatuated with Tyler. Her friends recall her as being, quote, fiercely attracted to the young man. She was even willing to look past his sexuality, which he tried to suppress. In her mind, she was convinced that God had arranged for the two to be together. And that meant that he could simply overcome his, quote, demons. The, the demons were, were his sexuality, you know, because obviously you can just get over that. Bethany would soon learn that this is a very difficult and lengthy path and something you just can't stop. She was just glowing. Everything that she ever dreamed of had come true. In the summer of 2007, Tyler left on a missionary trip for his church. This trip took him to Pakistan, where he claims to have had a number of supernatural experiences. Some, looking back, would describe them as kind of an audio hallucination. However, to Tyler, God was speaking to him directly. Oh, God. <clears throat> God? Yes. And no Trump questions. Okay. I have nothing else to ask you. When he returned weeks later, he resumed his normal life. But while waiting in line at a Barnes & Noble for the midnight premiere of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows on July 20th, 2007, he claimed that God spoke to him again. This time, he was given the idea to form a worship group. In his own words, what he heard was, what you just did in Pakistan, you are going to do at Southwestern. So when the group of friends convened again during the fall semester, they began transitioning into a full-blown worship group. Instead of deciphering Harry Potter books or other fantasy series, they began looking at select Bible verses, trying to understand the motivations of the people described within the book. In December of that same year, Tyler attended a conference for the International House of Prayer otherwise known as IHOP, a religious organization that was established in 1983 up north in Grandview, Missouri. IHOP was founded by a man named Mike Bickle. IHOP promotes 24-7 access to prayer rooms and centers for Christians to gather. It also promotes a sort of end-of-times philosophy, that the second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. The teachings center around the belief that the tribulation will be triggered by those who frequent the IHOP prayer centers, and that believers will get to see the return of the Lord within their lifetime. 
After attending this conference while driving home from winter break, Tyler couldn't contain himself. His life had really seemed to change. He sent his friends from his group a frantic message anticipating their upcoming worship group session. Quote, Friends, I kid you not, when I say that I feel God has transformed me more in the short period of time than I have been so far in my life, I have one word attached to one phrase that God has violently poured into my heart. It is echoing in the heavens right this instant, and I mean that literally. That word, that phrase, is this, revival. Through good prayer and worship, friends, I freaking cannot wait to talk to you in person unquote like that's the message so needless to say he found jesus through the rest of winter break tyler became completely infatuated and immersed in the philosophy promoted by ihop he became hugely influenced by what is known as the final quest this was a book written by rick joiner a leader of the new apostolic reformation the book was the perfect mixture between religion and fantasy and appealed to not only Tyler's personal struggles, but his black and white philosophy of the world. One friend later remarked about how this changed Tyler. Quote, in some ways, Tyler was as much a victim as anyone else. These apostles destroyed him. I, I think they drove him mad. Some of the things he was saying were, were incoherent and borderline insane. But when you're there, it's perfectly normal. Within months of returning to school and Tyler's return from his IHOP prayer initiation, everyone in their worship group became a hardcore IHOPer, or at least as someone later put it. Their long-winded discussions, which had once been centered around Heracroxes, Tolkien's fascination with language, became centered entirely about religion and spiritual teachings. Micah Moore, an outsider that was currently drifting through his freshman year at Southwestern University, was introduced to the worship group by Bethany. The two had met in an English class in the fall of 2007. And Micah had a reputation for being a free-loving, open-minded musician that just sort of wandered around through campus, often stumbling into groups of other musicians in order to play guitar with them. Micah was described as being weird and slightly, quote, out there. Someone described him as a space cadet, and Rolling Stone article once later described him as being so pleasant it was almost weird, but not in a creepy way whatever that means. When Micah first arrived at Southwestern in the fall of 2007, he had been a pretty introspective young man who struggled with identity issues of his very own. To be fair, I feel like many of us, especially earlier on in our younger life, struggle with our own identity. I'm 34 and I'm still figuring out exactly who I am. But Micah seemed to struggle a bit more than others. He was described by one of the members of the worship group as a thoughtful, and melancholy young man, going around tugging at his beard and thinking inwardly about all sorts of things. But the semester had seemed to break him out of his shell, at least a little bit. It was in this very semester that Micah decided to experiment with acid. This experiment did not end well. After taking the acid, Micah's self-perception issues began to multiply, and he began to doubt himself and who he was. He didn't even know what his purpose in life was anymore. Or at least, that is how he felt. 
So it was in these winter months that he sort of became adrift and was brought in by Bethany, who thought that this young man really needed some guidance. He immediately took to the discussions that they offered, seeing all the religious imagery as answers to the questions that he had long been asking himself in the preceding weeks. He quickly became one of the most zealous members of their group. In particular, he became a hardened follower of Tyler, who he also saw as the leader of this group. As Micah would later put it in his own words, with a community of believers around me, I'm no longer vulnerable. You've been described as a cult leader. Okay. True? I don't think so, no. By the spring of 2008, the worship group had grown to roughly 20 or so members, all of whom looked up to Tyler as their, quote, leader. With the way he spoke about the Lord and the alleged conversations that he had had with him, they assumed that he had a close relationship with God himself. Looking back, however, many see this as the year which Tyler began to exert his influence in ways that were, well, untoward. When members of the group started to couple off, Tyler would make comments about them not being a correct match. He would then begin trying to pair them with other people, which would only, in turn, sour relationships. He also began imposing odd punishments on people for weird infractions that he found off-putting, such as innocent flirting. This would be combated, by the way, by shunning or silent treatments, which deterred that type of behavior in the future. It was clear that trouble was brewing, but these young men and women weren't well-equipped to see the writing that was on the walls. They were more worried about losing the friends that they had found. College is a tough time for anyone, and they had a bond. Their faith was what had brought them together, and what had made them hold together was Tyler. To some members in the group, it was Tyler's opinion that carried the most weight. Whatever he said is how it went. This included thoughts about the Lord and what many saw as inappropriate physical contact. Tyler seemed to make subtle advances on other men in the group, always brushing off negative responses by saying it was a sign of a, a camadre, you know, we're just buddies, we're just being pals. Or, you know, it was just a, a symbol of their friendship. He said that it was a bonding that brought them closer to the Lord. And many of the followers did struggle to say no to Tyler when he began, you know, play wrestling with them or even cuddling with them in their own dorm rooms. Yeah, that's right. Tyler would just show up and, you know, demand some cuddles. Now, Bethany, to her credit, had not given up on her endless crush, despite Tyler at one point telling her directly, it'll never happen. She still continued to hold out hope. Side note to anybody out there. If you go to somebody and you tell them, I'm super attracted to you, what do you say? You? Me? Date? And they go, uh-uh, nah, it's never gonna happen, I'm not interested. That should be your cue to just get the fuck out. Someone not wanting you or not being attracted to you should be the number one biggest turnoff for you. Because, sweetheart, you're the prize, and if they don't want it, move along. However, Bethany didn't. During the summer of 2008, she became deeply depressed when three years of pursuing Tyler had resulted in no change in their relationship. And both friends and family noted that this summer was a turning point in Bethany's behavior. It was Micah Moore, the impressionable young man that fled into the open arms of Tyler. 
that experienced some of the most noticeable changes throughout this year. At the beginning of the year, he had been a wayward son, you know, searching for answers, what was going on in his life, and didn't really find anything, not until what he found in the worship group. Through the year, he became more and more infatuated with the International House of Prayer, even beginning to see demons in everything. Oftentimes, he would break down and begin speaking in tongues, claiming that God and demons were speaking through him. I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. In November of 2008, Michael claimed to have a vision. In this vision, he predicted a tragedy at Southwestern University. On December 3rd, the worship group made mention of the dark clouds on the horizon, in which they thought the tribulation they had been praying for was finally arriving. Then, on December 4th, the campus was abuzz with news that philosophy major Rob Atkinson, a fellow student, had been hit by a car and passed away. Rob Atkinson was a student who often butted heads with the worship's group philosophy, mainly Tyler's mentality of us versus them. At one point, Tyler even referred to Rob as a harbinger of the Antichrist. Tyler saw this as a good sign that those who stood against the worship group were being vanquished. Remember, Tyler had a way of black and white mentality, so this was Tyler's logic. Members of the group took the death of Rob Atkinson as a good sign, ignoring the fact that this was a tragic loss to the community and his loved ones. Instead, the group celebrated his passing, and this further cemented the teachings that Tyler was promoting. When they separated for winter break, they said goodbye to Micah for the foreseeable future. Micah would transfer to the University of Texas that semester, as his parents were legitimately concerned for his mental health. A therapist would actually later confirm that when they made this professional assertion that Micah was suffering from a psychotic break. At that point in time, his fear of being demonically possessed was very overpowering. The rest of the group, however, was looking for a way to continue on their worship path and make it a more permanent future. You see, the death of Rob Atkinson had turned them into true believers. At this point, their faith was undying. I would describe myself now as someone who still loves God, um, someone who still thinks God is in a relationship with God is so worthwhile. I literally wouldn't be alive right now if it wasn't for my relationship with God. Um, it's the only one who didn't bail when everybody else did. Bethany ended up graduating magna cum laude from Southwestern University in the spring of 2009 with a BA degree in English and minor in Spanish. However, instead of taking her degree and starting a career as a talented writer, she decided to accompany Tyler to Grandview, Missouri. And can you guess why they went there? Because that was the home of the International House of Prayer. There's something bigger going on. There's something bigger than me. Father, I lift my voice before your throne today, saying that we are in need of the Holy Spirit in this land. This was right after the recession had hit the Midwest pretty hard, and IHOP was investing heavily into the area of Grandview. They had bought over 125 acres of land and were putting tens of millions of dollars to increase the area's infrastructure, and this included new buildings for their organization to expand as well. 
This is when Tyler and Bethany decided to start their own chapter. This was known as the One Thing Internship Program for IHOP, a program which lasts roughly five months in which you are immersed fully into the Bible study and work programs. Between 8 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon, these interns would analyze biblical theology and then worship in the prayer room from 6 p.m. until midnight. Whew, and I thought I had a busy day. Tyler and Bethany, among others in the group, served as chaperones for the different houses, which were separated by gender. Let's refer to these as the woman's house and the men's house. These two houses were roughly four miles apart from one another. The two houses would meet up every day for group discussions and Bible study. Tyler began referring to the program as the community. Due to this, that name sort of stuck. Remember, what Tyler said sort of just went. Now, Boaz Harrington, who was a member of the college worship group, had moved into this community. According to him, he stated, God told Tyler that our group was specially chosen to show the rest of the world what it looked like to live in a community, to be a real Christian, to be radical. Throughout this year, in which Tyler and Bethany made such a huge life decision, moving to the same city, working for the same religious institution, you'd imagine that her infatuation with Tyler would have probably passed over by now. Maybe she realizes he doesn't like me, we're just friends, we're doing this whole religious group together, you know? We, we have a bond, but he's just not into me, I should let it go. Finally accepting, you know, that her and Tyler just simply aren't meant to be together. Yeah, you'd think that. However, that's not quite how it went. According to most people, Bethany was still completely head over heels in love with Tyler. And she was willing to wait as long as needed in order to earn his love and affection. Tyler, who had long been struggling, as we know, with his very own sexuality, finally agreed to start dating Bethany. He stated that in a moment in which the two were in the prayer room late at night, he was overcome with love and attraction for her. And on a summer evening after taking a long walk together, he asked her if she would go on a date with him. Of course, this thrilled Bethany. Finally, after all this time, the man she wanted, the apple of her eye, wanted her back. Shortly after a little bit of dating, he told her that he intended to pursue her Unto marriage. This was a dream come true for Bethany. She had been waiting over three years for him. However, that was where witnesses to their relationship, you know, the members of the worship group, were now members of this community, as Tyler called it, thought that something else could have actually been going on. They all noticed that the couple never shared any public displays of affection. Tyler even remarked at one point that they wouldn't even kiss until their engagement. What? I'm sorry. What? Listen, if I'm going to date you, I'm not saying we have to make out, but like, I need to kiss you. I need to feel if there's some chemistry. I'm not going to not kiss you until we're engaged. Hell, I don't even want to think about engagement. So like, let's lock lips and see if we feel anything. But Tyler, however, nah, nah, kissing is for marriage or like at least engagement, okay? We can't have any of that. That is sinning. To some, this made their relationship look staged. Bethany, who had long been dreaming of settling down with the man of her dreams and having a little boy who she had even wanted to name Samuel, was hoping that Tyler would become the husband she had once written letters to as a teenage girl. Tyler had a response to all of Bethany's hopes and dreams when it came to him. 
He called it selfish. I think absolutes are a lot more dangerous than I used to. And I have a really different idea of how to go about being a part of transformation for other people. It just looks really differently. Um, it's a lot more them-led, them-directed, instead of Tyler Deaton charisma-led or like Tyler Deaton, you know, insight-directed or something stupid like that. In 2010, Tyler Deaton continued to increase his sway over the other members of their IHOP community, urging them to cut off contact with family members and loved ones that seemed to not agree with their faith and what they were going for. And most of all, anyone that told them not to deal with Tyler. It was around this time, now that the group had around 25 members, that he began insisting that his purpose in life was to focus full-time on the ministry and to begin preaching for a living. However, because of this, he needed the others to support him, at least financially. Members that attended Southwestern University with Tyler, who had once been hopeful to begin careers of their very own, were now forced to take menial jobs in order to support Tyler and the community which he was curating. It was up to these members to provide all financial responsibility in order to follow through with whatever Tyler stated. One of the members who had not moved to the Grandview grounds stated that the former members became shells of themselves. Once you went to Kansas City, you didn't leave. It was during this time, as Tyler began to focus on the community full-time, that his teaching began to become more erratic. The end times of IHOP had always been a conceptual thing. But now, Tyler began preparing and stockpiling for the Great Tribulation, when God would battle evil for dominion of everybody's souls. He also began actively training members of the community for this militant view of the apocalypse. In the summer of 2010, a familiar face returned to the group. Micah Moore. He transferred to the University of Texas that year before, if you remember, because his mental state hadn't really been the best and was deteriorating for quite some time. However, his mental state didn't really improve and had gotten worse throughout the year apart from the group. He wanted back in. He immediately moved into the men's house. His parents were hopeful that maybe a return to some kind of spiritual guidance and his friends could help him get his mind right once again. After all, the time away didn't seem to help. If anything, it made Michael worse. At this point, Tyler had almost unfettered control of the group. No one challenged him when he made a decision that would initially affect everyone. If he thought something was for the good of the group, everyone else in the community went along with it because it was Tyler and he was the leader. When a member began to express anything about themselves in ways that Tyler viewed as a non-conformity, Tyler organized a collective shunning of this member. Yeah, Tyler was sort of a bully. Now, Bose had been friends with Bethany and Tyler for years. However, for the next few weeks during this time, Bose was ignored by everyone in the group, whose only communication with the rest of the community came in form of notes under the door from time to time, informing him of many decisions that had been made without any of his input. When the leaders of IHOP caught wind of this power trip that Tyler had been on, they were not very pleased. They informed Tyler that the shunned member, Bose, was to be allowed back into the group. But that didn't really stop Tyler from his mistreatment. 
Tyler made Bose eat his meals off the floor like a dog and then would verbally continue to abuse him over and over again. He was even assigned three members that would follow him around 24-7 because Tyler simply wanted Bose to have an eye on him. It was pretty clear at this point to the members of the community that they were living in a full-blown cult. However, those involved may have been too invested in their faith and their leader, Tyler, to see this. My authors I loved reading in the last two years said, really devastating loss is going to change you one way or the other. It's just you deciding how are you going to get changed. And I like to think that it's made me a more empathetic and understanding person. Now, Tyler and Bethany continued dating through 2010 and 11. However, their relationship was always considered to be a little odd. They really only ever spent time together on Tuesdays and Fridays, but for a limited amount of time. Their activities together included one date night, but their main hobby was baking. They really seemed to enjoy doing this together. Bethany entered a accelerated nursing program in 2011 at Menorah Medical Center, which was across state lines in Overland Park, Kansas. Kate Farlow, Bethany's supervisor at this nursing program, said that Bethany was a gifted young woman. She even went on and called her the most excellent nurse whose empathy was apparent to anyone who met her. Quote, she was very spiritual and very inspiring in the way she loved talking to patients. However, in Bethany's personal life, things were becoming a bit more reserved. Some described her as being jumpy and possibly a bit insecure. In fact, insecure and jumpy were exactly what her childhood friend Taryn called her when he visited in December. Many described that sadness seemed to be hiding behind Bethany's eyes, which to them had once seemed so full of hope and promise. It seemed as though her cheerful demeanor was just simply gone. Then, in August of 2012, Bethany finished up her accelerated nursing program just in time for her marriage to Tyler. That's right, the two ended up tying the knot on August 18, 2012 in a ceremony that was described by Bethany's friends and family in the following terms. Weird, awful, uncomfortable, quite difficult to watch, and a mistake. Wow, uh, <laughs> woo, okay. Anyways, so Carol, Bethany's mother, described the ceremony in an interview. We weren't even participants. We were observers to this messianic-type union, it seemed, taking place. Many, many people dream of their wedding day, and Bethany was no different. However, her childhood dreams of a beautiful wedding that was all about her seemed to be dashed and turned into a full-blown religious experience, orchestrated by none other than Tyler himself. Again, Bethany's childhood friend, Heron, went on and stated that, I remember thinking, she's still beautiful, but it's almost faded. A wilted kind of beauty. Like this. This isn't Bethany anymore. It was almost like I felt I had completely lost her. And now that she was married to Tyler, she was completely gone. Now, even still, amidst all of the disappointment, Bethany was hopeful for her future. When she left with Tyler to go on their honeymoon, Bethany was all smiles. Her mother was even quoted saying she was radiantly happy. 
To most of her friends and family, her smiling persona as she prepared to leave for the airport and embark on this honeymoon, heading off to parts unknown, are the last happy memories they ever had of Bethany. Carol stated, I was happy for her. Even if I didn't maybe see it, I still thought she's a smart girl. She's never made a bad decision ever in her life. So we trusted that she knew, that she knew this was the right thing. When Tyler and Bethany returned back from their honeymoon in Costa Rica, people were expecting to see a couple that had come together, you know, for once and for all, happy, loving, completely devoted to each other. This was not what they found. What they found was the two had not so much as headed off on a vacation as husband and wife, but more kind of like brother and sister. Remember, Tyler had been struggling for quite some time with his sexuality and just had not been able to bring himself to consummate the marriage. In fact, he never could consummate the marriage. To Bethany, who had just been looking forward to a long and happy marriage, this was close to the last straw. She had been longing for Tyler for a happy life with the man of her dreams. Instead, she was consistently vying for his attention, most of which often felt forced when he gave her any. Bethany actually ended up seeking out the, uh, the help of a counselor and a number of her close friends about the marital issues that her and Tyler were dealing with. She even told them that she spent a large chunk of time on her honeymoon reading through the Twilight series instead of having any intimacy or intimate time with her husband. Sounds like a blast. I don't know about you, but I would love to go on my honeymoon and only sit and read Twilight. For those of you who don't know, that was fucking sarcasm. A lot of people stated that when Bethany and Tyler returned, Bethany didn't seem like herself anymore. She kind of seemed like she was something different. It was pretty obvious that something was going on. She even moved into the basement bedroom of the men's house, which was Tyler's bedroom. However, because of Tyler's issue with his own sexuality and intimacy, she spent a number of nights each week just sleeping on the couch. She would also often end up in her old room at the woman's house. It really didn't seem like they were having a great marriage. Now, people asked Bethany about this, and she simply stated that she needed space, or she felt that she was being too controlled by Tyler, so she just stepped away. Weeks would go by, and many would describe somewhat of an abusive relationship that seemed to be unfolding in the background of the community. The same behavior that Bose had experienced earlier on seemed to be happening to many more. Whenever Bethany tried to raise her marital issues to Tyler, he often would lash out and either publicly ostracize or shun her. This actually made her issues quite worse. Bethany wasn't being heard and completely disregarded by her husband, the one person that she just wanted to understand. Because of the way that Tyler had structured the community, many of Bethany's resources were tapped. She didn't really have anyone to communicate with. The relationship with old friends was gone and family seemed to not really be there due to Tyler and his need to have control and control the opinion of those around him. Remember, Tyler wanted everyone to focus on him, which meant loved ones, family members, so forth, anyone that made you question the community was no longer as close to you as you probably hoped they were. Many of Bethany's loved ones who lived hours away recalled having no idea that Bethany was facing any of these problems. 
Apparently, Bethany would internalize a lot of her problems, something I'm sure a lot of us do. Sharing our problems and conflicts isn't exactly the easiest thing, but you know who should be there? Your husband. And in this case, he just wasn't. Tyler was stunting any kind of relationship growth between the two. She kept taking her problems to heart where they would continue to fester. Kind of like a wound that she just couldn't stop picking because there was never a way for it to be healed. Continuing into the fall of 2012, Bethany's emotional and mental state continued to decrease. This is when she began making comments that pointed to some serious issues that may have been going untreated. Tyler, her husband at the time, even went on to state that she was getting more and more depressed and upset. Tyler even mentioned during this time that she was getting more and more depressed, and she started saying things like, my soul is ruined, I'm just gonna go to hell now, and he even remembered that when she would say this stuff, he was just kind of like, huh? What the fuck are you talking about? I, I don't understand. Remember, Tyler had struggles with his sexuality, so to him, not really leaning into his wife and not helping her kind of felt normal to him. He was not attracted to her, he didn't feel that bond that she felt with him. So he didn't understand why she was so upset and why she was so depressed. I mean, to anyone else, it's fucking obvious, but to Tyler, he just, he didn't, he couldn't figure it out. He just could not put his finger on it. Now, as I've said, many people started to notice that Bethany's mental state was deteriorating. In fact, there are emails from October where the community began discussing the fears of Bethany's mental state. They indicated that they believed that she was on the verge of breaking. She was now considered at risk of losing her job, but also that she was approaching the thoughts of suicide according to members. Then, on October 23rd, 2012, Bethany's mental state was brought to a point. This is when she did threaten suicide. She brought a cup of windshield wiper fluid into the house where she confronted Tyler about their relationship issues. He managed to get the cup away from her and immediately called the police. When the police responded, Bethany was asked if she had any suicidal thoughts. In response to this, she simply stated, it would be easier to die than to change. That is heartbreaking. I cannot imagine Bethany's pain right now. She finally married the man that she had been vying for for just so many years. And all she wanted was his affection, his love, his communication. And Tyler just, he couldn't be honest. He couldn't tell her, this is not what I want. I'm sorry. He didn't have to out himself, I understand. That's not something you just do. But he could have told her he didn't want her. Instead, this poor girl was completely broken. It was then that Bethany was taken into protective custody at Truman Medical Center in Kansas City proper. While in protective custody, after being constantly monitored by nurses and medical health experts, she made several comments that alluded to some kind of reckoning that seemed to be awaiting her. She told several doctors more than once that she was damned and could not achieve salvation. Despite all of this, she was released from protective custody just two days later. Tyler even argued against her release, saying and believing that she was still very much suicidal. But the hospital didn't care and sent her on her way. Whew. <laughs> God, I love our system. Again, that was sarcasm for anyone who's not fluent in that. So Bethany returns to the community. 
The community, which is a program supposed to promote loving and a caring environment, people who are there for you, you can come together and talk to, where anyone could join and be a part of a family. But Bethany now felt more alone and like an outsider. On October 29th, Bethany was struggling with severe depression. It seemed as though it was getting the best of her. When she failed to finish her daily chores, another member of the community threatened to get her kicked out if she didn't start carrying her own weight. Instead of trying to talk to Bethany, those around her were shunning her, pushing her out and making her feel bad for her already bad state of mind. Word of this eventually got back to Tyler, who, at the time, was holding a prayer session that evening, and in the sermon, Tyler preached for members to choose between the community or their own personal selfishness, a message that seemed to be geared directly at Bethany. We were all really fascinated with the idea of getting to be in the last generation and with IHOP's teaching that there is a special group of people um, that are going to prepare the rest of the world for his return. We felt like we were all called to be part of that chosen group. During the arguments that Bethany would have with Tyler about their marriage, he often complained about her selfishness and not taking priority over the Lord. Now he was holding a public sermon among all of her friends, his friends, which seemed to be a scolding about her as an individual. Tyler even later on described her behavior during this prayer session. He stated that Bethany was sitting with her back up against the wall, curled in a ball with a mortified facial expression. And according to those who were there, it seemed that this was the last straw. For sure, whatever had been left of Bethany was completely destroyed in that moment. And still, <laughs> Tyler was completely oblivious. October 30th started off like any other day. Members of the community started off with their regular daily activities, whether it would be an analysis of Bible theology, maybe a session for prayers, or their day jobs to help, you know, financially fund what exactly was going on, you know, just maintaining the group of the community. Bethany, who was living in the man's house with Tyler, stopped by the woman's house early that morning to drop off a couple of belongings for the people that live there. Those that encountered Bethany say that she seemed quiet and pretty withdrawn. When asked if she was going to work at the hospital, she responded with the timid, no. So naturally, people asked her, what are you going to go do? What, what's going on? She would just state, I don't know. So surveillance footage shows that Bethany stopped by a nearby Walmart a little while after these interactions. She then stopped by a Flying J truck stop or convenience store shortly thereafter, and it was approximately about 12 hours later that Detective Cole of the Jackson County Sheriff's Office received the call that I told you about in the beginning. Now, though she was found with the plastic bag tied over her head, it was presumed that she did this to herself. The initial assumption that Bethany had taken her own life seemed to be unanimous across the investigators. The empty Tylenol bottle paired with the bag over her head indicated that she had gone through with what she had sort of been hinting at or seeming to want to do just a little bit before when she was put in a psych ward for two days. She seemed that she had carried through with what she was already thinking of doing. The notebook that they found in the car full of Bethany's troubled and scattered thoughts 
pointed to her deteriorating mental state throughout the time. However, there were a few things that may not have seemed to fit the suicide narrative. She had her diamond ring on her finger and they found the unfinished thank you cards in the car. It seemed like maybe she'd been working on them before making this sudden decision to commit suicide, which doesn't really fit with that. She would have had to make this a split decision and get everything needed as she had very recently been working on the thank you cards. Who's gonna send out thank you cards when they're expecting to not be alive soon? Then again, people with troubled minds at times can make very odd decisions, especially in the heat of the moment. And as somebody who has tried to take their life, sometimes it's not very apparent. You know what you want to do, you just don't want anyone else to know. Which in turn can make the person who is suicidal seem as though they're living somewhat a depressive but ordinary life. Basically, keeping up appearances in order to keep from anyone questioning if you're okay. But then again, there's the suicide letter. Obviously, the suicide letter and the ID made it very easy to identify the victim in the car. Now, when Detective Cole tracked down Tyler, Bethany's husband, she kind of got a little bit suspicious. Quote, When I spoke to Tyler, I didn't see the reaction that I expected from a newlywed at all. It kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. You see, Tyler and Bethany were only married for two months at this point. Any newlywed hearing that their spouse took their own life should probably have some shred of emotion. Tyler didn't really seem to. Again, I know there's always the argument of you don't know how you're going to react in a situation. But still, still, is a little fucking weird. That very evening that Bethany's body was found, it was confirmed that it was indeed Bethany. Almost immediately, the Jackson County Medical Examiner's Office ruled Bethany's death a suicide. Within days, her body would be released for burial in her hometown of Arlington, Texas, and her mother said this, She's dead, so we couldn't even cry. It just sucked the air out of us. It sucked everything out of us. On the night that Bethany was found dead, the community, which she had lived with for years and was heavily involved in, convened at the woman's house. There was a prayer service that had been led by Micah, the boy that Bethany had brought to the group five years before. Members during this time described Micah as seeming relieved. Like, it seemed as though during this service, like a weight had kind of just been lifted off of him. He was laughing, looking happy, and seemed to just really enjoy worship and his guitar that day. Not really like there was a care in the world. Not at all like a friend of his had just took her life. Tyler, Bethany's now widower, told the group at this prayer session, stay upbeat and press into the Lord, but this community is bigger than one person. What the fuck? I'm sorry, I don't like Tyler. I don't know how you feel about him, but I'm not his fan. It's your fucking wife, my guy. God. So the very next day, the worship group convened again with the memory of Bethany fresh on all of their minds, weighing on their hearts, at least some of them, apparently not Tyler and Micah. They began to speak about more, more erratic tones. Tyler would say, quote, as some of you know already, I'm a man who is in love with idea and crazy paradigms. And when they brought me Bethany's body, 
At first, I cried. But then I laughed because I said to her, Bethany, if you could see you, you would not like the way you look right now. What the fuck? Oh my god, do you not like him yet? Is everyone listening on the same page here? Is Tyler just like a trash person? Because I fucking think he is. <sighs> Let's continue. On November 6th, fun fact, that is one day after my birthday, over a hundred people crammed into a small funeral home onlooking Longview Lake, the body of water which Bethany had been found near. Together, these people memorialized and remember Bethany, a woman whose positive spirit had touched the heart of so many in her life. Now, what should have been a beautiful memorial was actually described as odd and weird by just about everybody. Those who were unaware of the life that Bethany had been living within the community were kind of shocked. You see, high-ranking members of IHOP had attended her memorial service. And it seems that during the service, there were some comments that raised alarms among the leaders of IHOP. The comments made by members of Tyler's community touched on some issues plaguing the group. But it wasn't the group who had really brought up these issues. No, it was Tyler. This brings us to the next day after Bethany's service. Tyler is informed by the International House of Prayer that he was no longer welcome on church property. And this included his beloved community and the housing that he even spent years cultivating, putting together, and growing. Yeah, I guess other people caught on that Tyler is trash. On November 8th, 2012, the medical examiner officially signed Bethany's death certificate. It stated that her cause of death was asphyxiation in the manner of suicide. The following day, Bethany's family prepared to finally put her body to rest. However, as they gathered at the cemetery overlooking Longview Lake, her mother recalled getting a phone call. It was from investigators. They called to say that they needed her body back and that we were not allowed to bury it that day. Hmm. That's a little strange. Now to a developing story this morning. The confessed killer of 27-year-old Bethany Deaton is set for arraignment today. Police are saying that Micah Moore confessed to killing Deaton to prevent her from telling someone she was sexually assaulted. On November 9th, Micah walked into the Grandview Police Department and made a startling confession. Moore, who at the time was 23 years old, was accompanied by two International House of Prayer leaders, Lenny Lagarda and Kevin Hardy. Lenny and Kevin had spoken with Micah after they overheard some pretty startling comments at Bethany's memorial service. This is when they decided that Micah should speak to a detective. As Micah walked to the back of the office, the two members of IHOP waited in the Grandview PD lobby. In interrogation, Micah told police that he had killed Bethany. You see, he did this because Tyler told him to. He gave the police a disturbing series of details and events, which began with Bethany drinking water laced with Seroquel, an antipsychotic medication which often resulted in sleepiness and sluggishness. And remember, people were complaining that she wasn't really holding her own. She seemed to be really out of it. According to Micah's confession, after being dosed with this drug, she had then been killed by Micah's very own hands. In his exact words, he put the white plastic bag over her head and held it there until her body shook. 
In the statement released later, Micah's confession also included the detail that the bag appeared to be inhaled into the mouth of the deceased. According to Colonel Ben Kenny of the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, that piece of information that he stated in the story was the missing piece, as they had not released that to the public. It seemed as though Micah's confession had connected some dots that left investigators questioning the scenario of suicide. So now Colonel Kenny and Detective Cole had been struggling with the idea of a newlywed committing suicide just two months after her marriage. And it seems that they had reason to be thinking this way. But the question remains, how did things progress so poorly and end in Bethany's death? It was worth mentioning that Bethany's body had been examined by the Jackson County Medical Examiner, and they were surprised to find that her eyes were still open. This indicated that despite seeming to ingest a bottle's worth of Tylenol PM as they found in the car, she was awake and aware during her asphyxiation. I don't know about you, but sleeping pills tend to knock my ass out, so your eyes shouldn't be open if you take a whole bottle. That was just one of the things that investigators had questioned over the suicide scenario. In fact, Colonel Kenny stated this, she wasn't asleep, and most people, when they overdose with some kind of sleeping medication, they just, their body just starts to slow down and eventually shuts down. Now, a family of Bethany also had their thoughts and doubts before her burial. When they learned that the drug she had consumed was Tylenol PM, they questioned why her, a registered nurse, would use some over-the-counter drug. I mean, after all, she was working at a hospital. If she was going to take her life and wanted to die, why not steal something from the hospital? She wouldn't be punished. She was going to be dead. She had ample opportunity and access to stronger drugs that could just, boom, take her out, white, like right there. Why Tylenol PM? Why? It didn't make sense. Now, during Micah's confession that he was personally responsible for Bethany's death, he made some more startling accusations. He claimed that Bethany had been dosed with Seroquel not one time, but several, with it becoming sort of a repeating pattern of abuse that had begun once she moved into the men's house and Tyler's room. He said that in the two months preceding her death, Bethany had been drugged and then sexually assaulted by several men within the household. And now, with her deteriorating emotional state, they were worried that she would begin telling authorities. Now, Michael does change his story a bit, but initially, he stated that Tyler was most likely not involved. In fact, he stated that Tyler was very least aware in the group. After all, Tyler was micromanaging everything within the organization and had a say when it came to everyday operations with the two households, but for some reason was completely oblivious. Micah also said that some of these sexual assaults had been filmed on an iPad within the men's house. I'm just gonna make an interjection and say there are some trash humans involved in this case if you have not caught on. It was after his confession that Bethany's mother, Carol, was phoned by detectives. They informed her and the rest of her family that they needed to perform examinations on Bethany's body. And as you guys know, this is when they were trying to lay Bethany to rest. The investigation into Bethany's death was officially reopened. First tonight about Tyler Deaton from the International House of Prayer University. His wife, Bethany, is the nurse who police first thought committed suicide last week. Man told police he did it and that Deaton's husband told him to. 
Tyler Deaton was involved with the International House of Prayer. We've learned that IHOP leaders knew Deaton was heading up a separate group where religious experiences included communal sex. Today, the IHOP University released this statement. It reads, quote, Knowing what we know now, we deeply regret our failure to discern the nature of Deaton's alleged practices. We further regret his admission to IHOP IHOP U four years ago and all connection he had with our organization. The full statement is two pages long. You can read it on our website, kshb.com. Now, Ed Novak was a lawyer who represented the International House of Prayer and laid out a statement for the press, which Bethany's death and all that was surrounding it had just now started to really seep into the media. IHOP did not know what Deaton was doing. The group that he organized and was working with, IHOP has no knowledge of, no oversight over, and no participation in which a person by the name of Keith Gibson, an evangelical pastor and author, had some uh, some thoughts on against this, and also in favor of. He stated that, okay, maybe IHOP wasn't responsible for what had happened to Bethany in any way, but it seems that the structures to correct abuse were not strongly in place. Because remember, IHOP had been brought attention to the community because Bose Harrington had been dealing with abuse. So how did IHOP not know about the community when they had already talked to Tyler? Hmm, seems like there's some lies going around. Now, during this time, the community was beginning to be referred to as a cult. Within days of everything, men and women were leaving and emptying out of the men and women houses for the community. Parents and relatives were coming to pick up these young men and women and taking them away. The women in the community were shocked at the allegations being made against Tyler and the other men in the men's house, especially the fact that there was cruel treatment and sexual assault. Now that everybody was sort of getting out of the houses, many people that were involved began speaking to investigators. And the more they spoke, the more that police realized a very disturbing story. Multiple men in the house told detectives that they had been engaging in sex acts with Tyler over their time in the community. At least three of them described it as a sexual relationship, and one in particular described it as a long-term sexual relationship. These men thought that they were not just sexually involved with Tyler, but they had some sort of commitment, a bond, something was going on between them and Tyler. One of the men in the house even stated that Tyler had been grooming him for these sex acts, kind of implementing what he wanted and kind of leaning him toward desiring and craving Tyler. It had started with uncomfortable physical contact, such as play wrestling or unusual cuddling, that ended up resulting in sexual activity. It didn't happen right away, though. Tyler would earn the men's trust and jokingly be like, this is just because we're friends. I love you, buddy. We cuddle, we kiss, we touch, we fuck. I wish I was kidding. Like, I'm trying to make a little bit like a ha ha kind of because this is such a dark fucking case. This is brutal. And I'm not, I'm sorry if it offends anyone that I'm trying to make a little bit of like a ha, but I don't personally have any comfort in speaking of sexual assault in any way, shape, or form, even grooming. I have been through hell when it comes to sexual abuse, and I don't condone any of that shit. But because this case is so fucked up to me, 
I apologize if I make a little bit of like jokes here and there, but it's so disturbing reading this case, so please don't come for me. Now, to many in the house, they never realized that they had become associated with what could be considered a cult. Tyler was described as manipulative and uh, described sex as a religious experience and used this as an affinity to God to manipulate and impress and, sorry, to manipulate and uh, be extremely impressionable on these young men forcing them to have sex with him because of their beliefs, because of their religious structure, which Tyler would kind of reiterate and force into their beliefs as well, stating that God wants you to do this. Remember, I hear him. Listen to me. God, it's super fucked up. Like, seriously fucked up. The young men in the household would go on to tell detectives that Tyler had told them about weird dreams he was having roughly three days before Bethany's body had been found. In one of these dreams, Tyler had described suffocating Bethany to death, which caused him to have trouble throughout the next following days. Huh. That's a little odd. Police really started to pay attention to the claims that were coming out of these houses. They started with those that were closest to Bethany, in particular, her spouse. This is normal. In most murder investigations, the spouse is always looked at. They look at their finances. They look at everything. So with all of this, everything that Tyler had done and said in the aftermath of Bethany's death came under extreme scrutiny. And I'm gonna be honest, it really made Tyler look bad. Now let's take a look back at the suicide letter. After all, Bethany's death was getting a second look, so let's talk about it for a second time. The letter was found near her body inside the minivan. Loved ones who were familiar with Bethany and her writing had always expressed disbelief that she had written it. After all, she won a scholarship because of her writing, and the suicide note was very, I guess, tough to read according to sources. One friend even stated that someone who wrote so beautiful couldn't have written something so inarticulate. Bose Harrington, you guys remember him, even stated the suicide note sounded nothing like her. But of course, if she had been as broken as she seemed to have been at that point, it would make sense that it didn't sound like her, if she even written it but there's no way normal her would have written that. Now let's look back at Micah, because two weeks after his confession, he recanted everything. Mainly the statements where he implicated that Tyler himself had anything to do with the death of Bethany. His lawyer, Melanie Morgan, spoke to the press and released a statement in which she declared the confession bizarre and fictional. Yeah. She stated that it was simply made by a distraught and confused young man. Now let's fast forward another year. Micah stated that the confession came after an exorcism performed by IHOP leadership. Yeah, you guys, this shit gets fucking crazy. Like, I didn't even know it could get crazier, but here we are. He then began pointing the finger at the organization itself, claiming that Micah was a highly impressionable young man and was under a lot of emotional anguish after the loss of Bethany and removal of Tyler from the community. So this caused him to just, you know, confess. He apparently confessed on the morning of Friday, November 9th in a very manic state. 
According to his counsel and him, he had not slept for days after an impromptu exorcism performed by the International House of Prayer, and it made all kinds of claims that he could not verify. He was taken into custody, where he awoke hours later, unaware that he had confessed to anything. Of course, the recant was dismissed. He walked into the police station to confess. Nobody brought him in there at all. So even though he recanted and tried to give his reasoning as to why he said what he said, prosecutors made it clear, mm-mm. We are going to investigate. I don't care what you say, Micah. Now, later in November of 2012, Micah was indicted on first-degree murder charges. Well, police say that Moore confessed a couple of weeks ago that he didn't want Bethany, um, Bethany Deaton to tell her therapist that he and several of his roommates sexually assaulted her. Now, he says they were all part of a religious community led by Deaton's husband, Tyler Deaton. Now, according to court documents, the community used communal sex as a form of a religious experience. Now, Bethany Deaton's death initially was considered a suicide. That changed when Moore confessed to police that he killed 27-year-old nurse and newlywed. Moore's confession includes an admission that Tyler Deaton, who was Bethany's husband, told him to kill her. Now, Tyler Deaton has not been charged, but the Jackson County prosecutor says that he is being investigated in connection with her death. Now, Moore, Bethany, and Tyler, they all have um, ties to the International House of Prayer. The group has since released a statement trying to um, um, separate themselves from the behavior. For the next couple of months, many began to wonder if Tyler himself was going to face any charges, seeing as how Micah was charged with first-degree murder. After all, Micah's confession placed blame on the death of Bethany solely on Tyler. Because according to Micah, Tyler orchestrated the whole thing. But by January 2013, no charges had been filed against Tyler. On January 17, 2013, Micah Moore entered a not guilty plea with his attorney, stating that the confession had since been recanted and that it was only a piece of evidence tying him to Bethany's death. Okay, what the fuck? Okay, so you can confess to murder and go, no, 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 that's just a piece of evidence. That's just tying me. I know I said it, but it's simply untrue. They continued to state in court that Bethany's death was a tragic loss, which was obviously suicide. Micah was granted bail shortly after, eventually getting out on a $250,000 bond. Over the next year, things continued to change. Bethany's family continued waiting for answers. They were eventually able to finally bury Bethany, but had to wait for resolution regarding her open investigation. Other members of the community who remained blameless in Bethany's death were struggling to readjust themselves back into civilian life. They had spent months and even years within the confines of this group and had to come to grips with the fact that they were duped and taken advantage of by someone that they genuinely believed in and in essence was their leader, though be it it was a cult. Tyler, Bethany's husband, had lost everything he spent years building. His worship group that became the community had turned its back on him and fallen into complete disarray. After he was kicked out of IHOP, he moved back to Texas where he got a job working as a pre-calculus teacher at a high school in Lancaster, just south of Dallas. This was short-lived, however, as he was let go in April of 2013 after students began Googling his name and discovered the horrific series of events that led him there. Despite being well-liked by students and the rest of the staff, he was suspended in April pending a review and then not asked back for the following year. 
I guess they thought he was a trash person too. Now Micah was waiting for his upcoming trial, which would determine the rest of his life. If Micah was found guilty, he would be serving a life sentence or even possibly face the death sentence. However, the following year, this happened. Feeling of relief. Tonight, a man is now free after he confessed to a murder he did not commit. Now at 10, Brindley Gonzalez talked with Micah Moore's attorney about why her client confessed in the first place. Not only did he recant his confession to police, there wasn't a trace of evidence connecting him to Bethany Deaton. After nearly two years, Micah Moore now walks free. We just hear relief. I mean, clearly he's thrilled. He's glad to have this cloud removed from him. His attorney, Melanie Morgan, knew he was innocent from the beginning. These were kids that lived in a community that were really, really good friends of his. And his statements, I think, hurt everybody. Police found Bethany Deaton dead in her van near Longview Lake with pills, a bag over her head, and a note. They originally thought it was a suicide until Moore told police Deaton's husband told him to kill her. Did he ever blame anyone for his confession? No. Micah had to understand how this confession came about. Moore was diagnosed with a reactive psychotic disorder, usually triggered by a traumatic or stressful situation. Morgan thinks that's what led to his false confession. When you've got police looking for somebody that committed a, a crime, particularly a really heinous crime, uh, there's pressure on them to make an arrest, obviously. And when you have somebody confessing to that, I mean, normally you're going to think, well, yeah, I confessed to it. Why would somebody say they did something so terrible if they didn't really do it. Paul Morrison is a former district attorney in Johnson County. He's never had a case dismissed because of a false confession. That's how rare it is. Now that this case is closed, Morgan says Moore's ready to face those he hurt. I think he would really like to have an opportunity to talk to them face to face. Especially Bethany's family. So that doubts that they may have um, could be put to rest. Nearly two years after Bethany had been found in the parking lot, in October of 2014, all charges were dropped against Micah Moore. Jean Peters Baker, the prosecutor in charge of the case, stated that she had consulted with Bethany's family before making her decision. This statement is completely rejected by Bethany's family, who say that they were told of the decision, not given any input. According to Baker, my office concluded that we could not ethically continue to pursue the case given the current evidence against Micah Moore. The duty of the prosecutor is to seek justice, not merely to convict. Huh, that's weird because I feel like I have seen convictions without evidence many times. But to be fair, I've also seen evidence be shrugged and allow shit people to walk. So like, what do we expect? I have no faith in the system, sorry. In the following years, police and other authorities have been looking at any evidence to back up the series of events that were laid out by Micah. However, the evidence they were able to accumulate suggested overwhelmingly that Bethany had in fact committed suicide. You see, the timeline had issues. Micah originally stated that he had killed Bethany before 10 in the morning. However, there was video footage that showed him at the community housing for class around 10 a.m. That information paired with surveillance images that showed Bethany at Walmart and the convenience store Flying J buying Tylenol PM, that seemed that maybe Micah was lying. Not to mention, Bethany used her debit card after 10 that morning. So how did Micah do it? She was still alive with her debit card. I don't know. 
Another major component in Michael's confession was the claim that Bethany had been drugged and repeatedly sexually assaulted before her death. When the medical examiners took a look at her body, they found no trace of Seroquel. This was the drug that Micah claimed she had been drugged with several times. Secondly, they also found no evidence of any sexual assaults that had taken place. In fact, the physical evidence suggested that Bethany had still been a virgin. Cementing the lack of intimacy between anyone, including Tyler. Also in Micah's original confession, he had stated that some of those sexual assaults had been filmed on an iPad. The police had seized several devices from the men's house in order to review them. They found no such videos or any proof that they had once existed. Adding to it, investigators found no DNA evidence of Micah Moore within the vehicle that Bethany was found in, and all of the handwriting analysis concluded that it was in fact Bethany's handwriting. Now, in a second investigation on her body, her manner of death was changed from suicide to undetermined. It seems that prosecutors may want to keep their options open. Now, Tyler seems to probably have moved back to Corpus Christi after all of this. His family lives there. Reporters tried to contact Tyler, but he apparently lives anonymously because of everything. I mean, I don't know what actually happened, but the whole thing makes me very uncomfortable and I do not like Tyler. Sorry if you think he's cool. I think he's trash. Now, surprisingly, CBS did put together their 48-hour special on Bethany's death and Tyler was cooperative. You guys heard some of the excerpts from that episode. He wanted to appear and kind of clear his name, but only ended up compounding the thoughts and opinions of basically everybody. To many, while on camera, he appeared off-putting and was constantly smiling and laughing about every serious question that they threw at him, which is very true. He gives this interview very, uh, he treats it very lightheartedly, you know, like not, he's, he's not talking about the death of his wife, this possible murder or suicide. He's talking about his love of God and how he's still here and he's so thankful for that. And it just seems like it's a, a normal interview. It's quite disturbing. Tyler has continued to reject any assertions that he was involved in Bethany's death in any way. Many people that did not speak to her in her final weeks accept that Tyler did not kill Bethany. However, many of them still blame him for her death, alleging that he isolated and shunned her to the point where suicide was her only option. With all said and done, the death of Bethany pretty much seems unresolved. Was it a suicide? Was it murder? Was it premeditated? What really happened in the community, in the men's house? What really went down? Was anything Micah said true? Did Tyler have an involvement? I mean, we know he didn't have a lot of emotion when he was told that his wife was found deceased. And then he, he humiliated her just what, a day before everything happened. He didn't talk to her. He didn't communicate. He openly berated and belittled her. I don't know. The whole thing really makes me uncomfortable. And even if Micah did not kill Bethany, again, I don't know. Anyone who goes to a police station and states that they murdered someone and continues to tell a horrific story with such devotion and claiming it as reality is a very disturbed individual.
When I spoke with Tyler, I did not see the reaction that I expected from a newlywed at all. And it kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I know this was a long episode and I left out a good bit of information. I put together as much as I could, but if I went through all of everything, this would be a very long episode. Feel free to look into all of this information. It's, there's not a lot, but there is a lot. Like you gotta go around and you gotta start a dig and you get deeper and deeper. And a lot of the same information is all over the place. So you, you can learn everything you wanna know about this case. I will always tell you guys to go check out all of the cases I tell you about and make your own informed decision. Nonetheless, I would love to know, do you guys think Micah and Tyler are behind Bethany's death? Were there assaults in the house or did Bethany take her own life? No matter what you believe, no matter who you think is responsible for the death of Bethany, nonetheless, this is a tragic story of a life cut short far too soon. I feel very weird saying it's been fun, but uh, I do enjoy coming here every week and telling you guys some of the stuff that I find in the world. Though I do not enjoy the horrific, gory details, I enjoy that there are other people in the world that are just as interested in some of the stuff that's out there. Whether we like it or not, we live in a very dark world. We never know the true dangers that are lurking just around the corner, and how dangerous those closest to us may really be. With that said, guys, stay safe, and I'll talk to you next week. Love you. Later. Bye.